Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk. I'm Cindy Howes. Another exciting episode of Basic Folk. Actually, very excited about my guest this week. Uh, Basic Folk is an interview podcast featuring conversations, authentic, honest conversations with folk musicians that fly under the radar or not for you. I am very pleased to have Kaya Cater on the show today. Kaya is a Canadian claw hammer banjo player who just released a new album this past October. The record is called Grenades, uh, and she is uh, she's very smart. I know I say that about every one of my guests. All of these people are so smart, um, but Kaya is very smart, and also. Um, I, I really appreciate the fact that she was so open to my questions about race. Um, Kaya is biracial and it comes up a lot in you know her life and part of her identity. And this record actually is about kind of trying to find pieces of her identity, the, the record grenades. I'm going to play a song from the album. Uh, I, I really love this record and it's hard to choose which song to play. But I want to play one that features her singing and then also her banjo playing because uh, there's some tracks on this record, Grenades, from Kaya Cater that uh, are very like Hammond organ sounding. But she's such an amazing banjo player that I wanted us to check out this song, Heavenly Track. And then we'll get to our conversation with the super nice and super smart and super great Kaya Cater on Basic Folk. You got saved at the hip Washed in suds and that broke bread at the halfway house laid out to the side. I know you, I know you, ain't I seen you before? I felt you on the ceiling and I felt you on the floor. In the right. 
Kaya Cater, thanks so much for talking. It's so great to see you. Good to see you too, Cindy. Thanks for having me. Of course. So you were born in Montreal and raised there. Your family had a really strong connection to folk music in a couple different ways. Your grandfather, is he still around? He is. Yeah. Okay. He's a is he still a luthier? Um he is. He's, you know, he's um uh, 72 now so he's slowing down a little bit um but yeah he's been a luthier his whole life he originally went to school for architecture in montreal just totally hated it but still loved uh kind of figuring out problems like mathematical problems and woodworking and stuff like that so he actually managed to convince the dean of mcgill university which was where he was going at the time he managed to convinced the dean to let him do this kind of odd luthier degree and um and he did a lot of independent study and he was making a lot of harpsichords for most of his life in the early uh 70s and through to the 80s and then he was um, making harpsichords harpsichords yeah do you know how to play one i mean i used to mess around with them in his workshop and but i always found the sound to be not as like attractive as the piano, which is like mm. more emotive to me. The the right. me and the, the harpsichord never really got on the same wavelength, but there's still time. <laughs> Super goth sound yeah, yeah, to it, yeah, yeah. Uh, so your mom runs. Uh, does she still run a few folk festivals in Canada? No, she um she ran the Ottawa. Folk Festival from 2007 through to 2008, so she was two years with them. And then she ran the Winnipeg Folk Festival from 2009 to 2011, so she was three years with them. And then um, she kind of moved into, um, she worked for a national folk organization called um, Folk Music Canada, and now she's just sort of getting into like grant writing and kind of working for herself, which I think she's really enjoying. That's awesome. And yeah. she is also a musician. Uh she she's a great. I think she's a great guitar player and singer. And she used to learn songs to help me sleep. So she would like learn some Joni Mitchell songs and some Jewel songs, and uh, and that was like one of my favorite parts of my childhood. But she doesn't play music in public, and her her whole motto, like her life kind of ethos, is if you can't make music, make music happen. So I love it. Yeah, so that that's kind of the thing, and um, yeah, and I actually really like that because I feel like with that kind of attitude, like that kind of presence in her life. I, like through her, I've been able to meet a lot of really cool people, and I feel like some of like those values that I grew up with are still there with both of us. So, and you were talking about how you weren't attracted to the harpsichord sound, but a sound that really did appeal to you, of course, was the banjo. Can can you talk about that a little bit? How, like, what was appealing to you about that sound? Yeah, that is funny. I kind of felt that when I was talking about that. I was like, oh, I didn't like the plucky sound of the harpsichord, but then I picked the banjo, which is like a hilarious um, U-turn. Yeah, I mean, I think I was just, I was attracted to how weird the banjo was, like how strange it was. And I don't think I really had 
words uh, to describe that when I was learning it. I really fell in love with the clawhammer style of playing the banjo, um, which to me is a little bit softer, kind of a little bit more tender, which I really liked. You know, I was around a lot of music as a kid, and I saw a lot of banjos, and so when I pointed to it and was like, I want to play that, there was like, you know, there was a means to like get me an instrument and like figure out a way for me to get lessons, you know? And I think my mom was like, she like definitely was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And I did some sports, but I think maybe she was secretly hoping that I would like return to the fold and like choose a, a folk instrument. And then... so anyway, she was super stoked when I picked the banjo. That's awesome. Um, can you explain the claw hammer banjo style a little bit? Yeah, so it's an older, slightly more percussive way of playing the banjo. Usually, um, well, there are all sorts of banjo styles, but the most common in American roots music are um, Scrugg style, which um, a lot of your listeners might um, have heard Scrugg style played in bluegrass. It's pretty virtuosic. It's played really fast in what they call... Um, banjo rolls essentially and the claw like foggy mountain breakdown exactly yeah and claw hammer banjo is um is the kind of like the grandmother to that style so the claw hammer banjo was played a lot by um early appalachian settlers and also by a lot of um um african-american um enslaved peoples uh who would who would uh brought over the banjo through the transatlantic slave trade because um, the banjo actually has uh, has its roots in West Africa. So it was, you know, I we kind of assume that it was brought over during the transatlantic slave trade and that a lot of black people played it. Through and for many reasons, the banjo has kind of been blanched or like widefied and countrified, but it's actually an instrument that has like a really complicated, I would say complex history. The complex history of the banjo, was that kind of a reason I read that you were pretty secretive about being a banjo player in high school? Yeah, I didn't really tell anyone. Just because I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be bothered with with the stigma, and you know, in high school you were just con- concerned with fitting in and getting through. And I started playing it. I remember the moment that I started playing it was when a friend of mine who was a guitar player, she's really good, she's a really good guitar player, and now has since um, taken up the clawhammer banjo and is really great. But, you know, she was my first friend, uh, at that high school and I transferred in the middle of grade 10 to Winnipeg in January, which was like perfect timing. Yeah. Per- just right in the middle of high school. Yeah. Just an amazing, <laughs> amazing time. Anyway. So she was the first friend that I made. And over the next like year, we started talking about I told her that I played, and so I would go over and jam with her. And uh, and around that time, that um, Mumford and Sons record came out. I can't remember what it's called, but it blew up like among our like generation of people. 
And then you rose like a phoenix yeah, I, out of the ashes. the ashes. You're like, look at me, everyone. Yeah, I was like, I've been playing it this whole time, and now I'm like really good at it. <laughs> what was people's reaction when when you were like, look at me? I got. I mean, I mean, you're not really like a look at me type of person, but when yeah. you're like, hey, I actually play the banjo. Yeah, well, I played it at the. Co- we had a thing called the the Kelvin. I went to Kelvin High School, which is actually the same high school that Neil Young went to. Um, fun fact, but yeah, so, so I, um, so I did their like coffee shop thing and we played a white stripe song called, I think it's like, I can tell that we are going to be friends mm-hmm. with my friend who's, who's a guitarist. And then I played just like a solo banjo tune. And at the end people were like so into it. And I felt like that was, that was just like me coming out as a banjo player and like this, like I was like, I don't know, people probably think it's weird, um, but people were super into it. And then I like, I became known through the school as like, yeah, she plays the banjo. Like, it, I think it was cool. I don't know. It was like a hipster kind of cool, probably. I want to hear the stories behind when you were first coming to the Clawhammer banjo at these folk festivals that your mom would run, you had kind of like VIP all access to these like incredible claw hammer banjo players and you would like ask them for lessons? Yeah, um, they were really generous with their time. Like now being a touring musician and like being exhausted at festivals, you know, I can tell that it was like, it was a lot for them to to accept a request from a kid for a lesson, you know, and it, it was really nice of them to be so gracious about it. I want to know a little bit more about your experience with Rhiannon Giddens, getting, you got one lesson from her. What was it like for, I guess, like for both of you in that experience? Because I'm sure she doesn't come across a lot of young people of color and specifically women of color who are interested in uh, folk music and, and the banjo. Yeah. Um, I think she was pretty stoked. I mean, uh, I'm just trying to think of like her at that time. She's probably around my age, the age I am now or a bit younger, you know, and the the Carolina chocolate drops had blown up. And uh, when I think about how excited and kind of weepy I get when I see like young black women or women of color, like interested in folk music, I'm getting weepy about it now. I'm just like, oh, I'll give you anything you need. I'll like support you. Um, yeah. And um, and I've had a few of those opportunities now to like interact with youth who are just stoked and looking a lot of youth are looking for ways to express themselves and sometimes just need, just need an instrument or just need you to show them a few things. So yeah, she, she was really supportive and and has been really supportive since, um, of my career. Obviously she's gone on to do really incredible things. And in a lot of ways, you know, her and the chocolate drops did a lot of, work a lot of like road mapping in terms of Mm. how can a person of color who's who plays these types of instruments have a successful and fruitful career they were kind of the first people in in my view like the first people of my kind of generation to do that yeah yeah so growing up aside from the influence of folk and traditional music you were listening to a lot of hip-hop maybe more than folk music 
Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, and you got a lot of this music from your dad, music that he thought you should listen to, and you definitely took to it. Um, I'm interested why you were still drawn to play folk music, even though you were listening to mostly rap music growing up. And do I... you think that rap informed who you are as a musician? Yeah, absolutely. And I should clarify that... Um... Do you remember those MP3 discs where that first came out? You could put yeah. like 200 songs on a disc. So he would send me like a bunch of those. That's what I felt was like a real hip hop, edu like an education in hip hop. And my mom also, to her credit, like she gave me a Fuji's album on my like 11th birthday. And so I think both of them were, were trying to be really conscious of like helping me access like music that wasn't strictly white like considered white music you know mm -hmm. um yeah and, and I don't know why I kept playing f folk music I think probably there was a curiosity that wasn't limited to any particular genre so I didn't feel an alliance to any particular genre which was helpful at that time also, I learned a lot, like, I learned so much history in hip-hop and in rap music, and I also, it was also an education in poetry and in lyric, lyrical um, prose. There was just so much that I was trying to absorb at that time from musicians that I felt were, were so incredible, and I think I was getting, I was getting a lot of, like, my, my technical influence from old time music and from folk music but i was getting a lot of my lyrical influence from hip-hop and rap when you um went to west virginia you went to college there and you really got a chance to study the art of appalachian music um and i read that you were kind of recruited like a football player because mm -hmm. you were an all-star canadian banjo superstar <laughs> yeah i mean that's how i introduce myself like at parties yeah. so thank <laughs> you for for um giving me that title yep. yeah um i was you know i mean i was i was a kid i was like 18 and i'd graduated high school and didn't know what i wanted to do and was kind of struggling and was waitressing and playing music on the side and um, I had applied to a summer program similar to like the mile, like similar to miles of music camp, which, which we have both attended that happens in, on an Island in New Hampshire. It was just like a way to attend an intensive. And this intensive happened to be, um, through an organization that, um, was, uh, took its residence on a college campus in West Virginia. So unbeknownst to me, I had submitted my application. This was um, early 2012. I submitted it, didn't really hear back, figured, well, you know, maybe I didn't make the cut and kind of forgot about it. And um, unbeknownst to me, the college, along with the organization, which was called Augusta Heritage Center, had partnered together and the college had agreed to provide the funds um, to have more young string, like string band musicians come down. And the deal was that we could get an education and get a degree in whatever we wanted. 
while also um, being contracted to a certain amount of performances with the string band um, and clogging team to represent the school. So it was kind of like a, yeah, it was like a sports team. Anyway, I got a call in May of that year and I went down. It was kind of unbelievable, but um, it was all legit and I went down with my family and we checked out the campus, and I was enrolled by August. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's so strange to hear that even on the drive down there, you're like, well, I don't know if this is real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and then it, it was. Um, so do you actually have a degree, like, not in banjo? No, so that's, I think it's a lot of, um, it's good that you ask because there's like a lot of confusion about that. People are like, you went to study music, but you didn't get a B muse, like you didn't get a bachelor in music. So I got really into um, religion and philosophy. And so I just, and it, it was like crazy because, you know, I don't have a religious family. My family are pretty a-religious and I you know, I hadn't given a second thought to religion other than it was a divisive kind of scary entity. Mm -hmm. And, um, I took a world religions class in my first semester at the school, which was just a gen ed credit. And I totally fell in love with it. And it was like, it was kind of this moment where I was like, yeah, this is absolutely what I want to do. And originally yeah. I thought I was going to study, um, Appalachian music and history. Um, but the degree hadn't quite formed there and it was kind of nebulous and there was just this other path that seemed so attractive to me, um, and is still really, um, like attractive to me. Like, I feel like if I ever stopped playing music, like I would just go to school for philosophy and religion, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I did. I got a degree in that. What's your favorite religion? What's my favorite religion? That's funny. <laughs> um, I really like. Um, I really am really interested by Sufism, which is like a mystical um, uh, kind of religious uh, aspect of Islam. Mm. And Sufis are, um, they have in their tradition, like, if you know, if your listeners know, like, what whirling dervishes are, which is just these people, usually men, that, like, spin and spin and spin, if you've ever seen a whirling dervish. Um, it's it's supposed to be this, yeah, this kind of, um, I'm not exactly sure what it's supposed to represent, but I think it's just supposed to, supposed to represent, like, just, like, your, um like your commitment to the infinite or something or like you getting past your earthly thoughts and just spinning. Mm. Um, yeah, but it's really cool to, to go, like if you look them up on YouTube and, and watch them, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, um, sect and it's actually the minority, um, sect. So there's Sunni, um, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims and Sufis. Um, and, uh, they're, uh, kind of a minority but it's a really interesting faction of islam i want to take some time to talk about your voice um your voice has so much emotion in it and i think you use it in really interesting ways 
What is your relationship with your singing voice and how did you learn to sing? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, for a long time, you know, my family sings. Uh, we used to get together um, bo during Boxing Day, which I don't think Americans have really what they call it that, but it's just the day after Christmas. Where you and wear those hats. Yeah, where you, yeah, where you wear the hats. Yeah. Yeah, good knowledge. Um, <laughs> anyway, we used to have these kitchen jams and everybody would sing and like even if you weren't playing an instrument you would sing along and it would just be like two and a half hours of like everything from like Joni Mitchell and Neil Young to like old gospel songs so like you know like by the mark and stuff like that um so I, I always remember singing um I never thought I had a good voice though um and I went do you to think you have a good voice now yeah I do I think I don't know if it's as much I didn't have a good voice then and I do have a good voice now. I don't think it's that binary, but it's maybe the fact that like I am learning every day how to use my voice um in a in a more safe and also emotive way. You know, to how to like grow my voice. My voice really in my range especially my low range increased like crazy when I was in college because I was singing a lot in college and it was the first time that I had a singing teacher uh, my teacher Emily Miller who's um, she's part of the Starry Mountain Singers and she's just an incredible vocalist um, anyway so she was a huge influence on me and we did a lot of singing and that was you know through college I mean my banjo playing got better but my singing just really changed and probably also because I was still growing and like developing as a human physically it's kind of interesting like just to see what it's done and it all almost feels like its own its own thing like separate from me you know mm. in my experience and I believe also in your experience as well but I'm gonna let you answer this question I see the world that we're in this folk and Americana world is a very white place. And I read this incredible interview you did with Amara Thomas in The Fader, who is also a woman of color. So like, my heart was literally in my throat reading about your experience. And like, your audiences are mostly white, privileged people. Yeah. Um, that seems like it ha is a struggle for you. So in the interview, you said... I would love to get away from a space where I only perform for the majority of whom I feel are privileged white people. I want to be able to collaborate and access spaces that are more cathartic for me. So I'm interested in like how you're feeling about that particular aspect of it these days and if there are some ways you're working towards um, uh, more cathartic spaces for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. It's really, it's a question mark for me. You know, I, I, um, I've come to this realization that, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to find that. And I also don't know if that is the answer. Um, so there are a few things. First of all, um, I I feel um 
like and and this this may put off a lot of people but i don't care um i (laughs) i don't want to play bluegrass festivals anymore for the most part um because i have a lot of there's there's this element of nostalgia not at all bluegrass festivals and there's one that i love that i grew up going to um called gray fox that i played this summer and and i had a, a great time and where is that it's in um oak hill new york but I, you know, there are bluegrass festivals. There's a bluegrass specific bluegrass festival that I played recently that, you know, I, I drove onto the grounds and it was just littered with Confederate flags, you know, and I was playing and I was about to go on stage and play for this audience that, you know, much of whom probably, um, you know, do, do not have conscious racial bias. Um, but that doesn't, that almost doesn't matter, you know. I I have thought about, you know, rather than s- spaces that are cathartic for me, which I think will take a, a long time to carve out. I have I have decided to start avoiding avoiding places that are actively um, actively um, er- erasing. I guess like my presence or even the like proverbial presence of black people or the the um the the history of of america specifically so you know or the places that are antagonizing so that's been a step that i've decided to take um and i think just really being honest at my shows i have this thing i do which is kind of funny and terrible but i kind of tra- i trap people so my first set if i do a two set show my first set in a new place my first set will be like will have no mention of race and then at the intermission you know people buy my record and they're you know they're super <laughs> into it and then in the second set I start to get like really heavy and intense and like kind of don't give a you know what about um about people's comfort. And so I talk about it really honestly. And that's usually the time when I'll get like when people will be bothered or people will leave or whatever. And it's like, well, I've already gotten your money, so <laughs> jokes on you. Like, um, yeah, and I, I, you know, and I think it's it's just about. I think the the catharsis happens um, when you know I feel strong enough and good enough to talk about race on stage, and when people don't run, you know, I don't think it's about getting like now. Now I don't think it's about getting away from white people, but rather just being able to be honest with white people and appreciating the people who stay and who listen, um, you know, and, and I, ideally I would love to branch out to more, um, audiences with people of color and it's something that I'm actively trying to do. Um, and I think it's, it's just something that will come with time, you know, and I always appreciate the people of color that come into my shows. I did a show in New Jersey once and there was a guy who um who came into the came into the room and realized that it was all white people and and that's triggering for for a lot of people of color so he had to go back to his car and like really think about whether he wanted to come back in but he did come back in you know and he did see the show and he did buy a CD and and I'm just hoping to 
like if if people of color are willing to come to my shows like I will make it a space where you feel seen and you feel heard you know and that's and and in the same way I'm I'm trying to to play in spaces and in places where I feel seen and I feel heard and mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of that's that's essentially the the like ecosystem that I'm trying to create which means you know um not playing festivals where where that isn't at least an effort, a clear effort, you know? Right. So smart. This might seem like trite going from that topic to this topic, but I think it kind of ties in. Maybe. Could be wrong. Um, The hairstyles that you featured in your promo shots over the years are really striking. Um, What is your relationship to your hair, and do you style your hair in an intentional way, aside from looking, like, really cool? Um, (laughs) Is there a deeper meaning to it? Oh, that's a good question, Cindy. I've never gotten that question. That's a great question. Um, Yeah, hair is a huge part. It's such a huge part of my life, you know, and my day and my entire (laughs) um, existence, like it is for many um, black women. I there was there was a lot of conversation, you know, I my hair is natural in that in the in the picture on Nine Pin and for for your listeners, my hair is cornrowed and then kind of styled into like a cool like like dinosaur kind of looking like like a <laughs> bump kind of thing. Um and I loved it. I loved it because I felt like it was it was unapologetically me. Um, and then for this, uh, this record, um, that I've just put out grenades, my hair was also natural in the picture. And there was a huge discussion with my hairdresser, you know, originally I'd asked for braids and extensions and I wanted to, it to be super fancy. And she just looked at me and it was like, you know, you should, you should just wear your hair natural. You should just be who you are, you know? Um, so yeah, so so it's it's definitely a, it, a hair evolution. I think can be seen in my records and um, and yeah, I'm always trying to get better at taking care of my hair and styling my hair and avoiding those frustrating moments where I want to like cut it all off, like shave it off. Um, yeah, thank you for asking that though. It's <laughs> a great question. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I'm also if I could ask a little bit more questions about your hair, um, who taught you how to style your hair and how to work with your hair? Yeah. Cause it sounds like your mom is white. Yeah. And, and your dad lives separately from you. Yeah. So this was a hard thing. Like my mom actually did, you know, for someone who didn't have YouTube, and didn't have like a <laughs> forum of like white moms like or like talking about how to style biracial hair like she did a really good job it was when i started taking care of my own hair i think that that kind of fell off you know i think she was maybe hesitant to try and tell me what to do because you know we're different races and you know i was i was kind of like a teenager when i started taking care of my own hair so she, i think she kind of left me alone for that reason um and when I would see my dad, he would just bring me to a hairdresser, um, to a hairstylist. So, so I kind of learned 
bits here and there from from hairstylists and then actually when I went to college I had a lot more um black friends like black female friends and they taught me a lot like a lot about how to style my hair and it was usually like I would be like oh yeah I wash my hair every few days and then they look at me and be like what (laughs) they'd be like no this is what you need to do with your hair and like they're really supportive and like would come over and like do my hair sometimes and stuff like that and I actually have a close friend um who is is black and, and and was raised by white parents and she and I she's a few years younger than I am but she and I were in college at the same time and we're really close um but I saw her kind of go through a similar thing of just like how how do you deal with your hair when you don't have black women in your life teaching you and helping you you know so that's that's kind of like that was kind of like a a chasmar like a, a a place where you know I there was a lack of education for me and for her hmm. your latest album Grenades named for Grenada your father is from Grenada and he emigrated to Canada in yes. the 70s or the 80s the 80s when you were growing up it sounds like you would go kind of back and forth between Montreal and Grenada. At Montreal and Vancouver, which is where he was living and going to school. Okay. Yeah. So when did you spend time in Grenada? Oh, uh, well, I spent time in Grenada. Actually, no, you're right. I, I spent time in Grenada like up until I was six. We went back and forth a lot. And then it just kind of stopped. Like, I, you know, I think my parents both were really busy with just being, you know, having careers in Canada. My dad went back sometimes, but not that much. Um, so I mostly grew up with, like, childhood memories of Grenada. But then, like, not being all that interested in in it like just kind of being like well this is my life in Canada but also it was interesting because I had there was a lot of loneliness there you know I was an only child I am an only child I have a huge family there but I you know I didn't really know them I think it was like kind of the the classic thing of like being a child of an immigrant of just kind of figuring out what your like who you are essentially like as as a new Canadian you know, and I was pretty consumed with that um, for a long time. And it's it's recently that I r- have really wanted to to reconnect with Grenada, have a continuing influence on my life, you know. How did you prepare for this album? Did you travel to Grenada with the intention of getting ready to reconnect in such a, a way of like making this record? Yeah, I mean, I knew pretty much right away that I had to go. Um, There was this kind of compulsive thing where I was like, okay, I I really have to go. And I I received funding from the Canada Council for the Arts, which are a great organization which help artists just give grants to artists to do what they need to do in terms of research. So I got a grant. 
Yay! So I got a grant from um, from the, the Canada Council, and I sublet my place here, and uh, and I went there for a month, and it it was great. Like there are a lot of things that you know I expected to go there and to feel you know when you always when you're in a I think when you have a hyphenated identity, you there's a certain amount of loneliness. Uh, that comes with that territory of feeling like you're not, you don't quite fit in anywhere. And my expectation was that I would go to Grenada and suddenly find the missing puzzle piece, um, the kind of like find yourself voyage. But um, I went there and, you know, I realized, you know, no, I, I'm, I'm different. I'm, I'm Canadian. I have a lot of in, like Canadian influences in my personality and in my um, in my identity. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a cool way to get to know my family and also to feel more confident and okay with who I am, rather than trying to assimilate myself. Just to realize that you know there's there's beauty and truth in being both. You know, which is what my dad always said, but it was just kind of like, I just never listened. <laughs> whatever, dad. Yeah, whatever. You don't know anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there are a couple of speaking interludes on the album that are super interesting, and I want to know more about them. Who is speaking? And it sounds like you included these to break up the um, different uh, parts of the record. Yeah, so it's an interview. It's my dad's voice. It was an interview that I had with him um, last Christmas. It is actually a three-hour-long interview, and I would love to turn it into like a radio piece in some way. Um, but for now, I just I just took those three um, excerpts. Um, because they're hugely influential to the album, and the interview that I did with him actually preceded any songwriting that I did so it felt like that should be the rock or like the center from which all the songs came from even if they weren't directly related um some of those like emotional touchstones were really important to me so I look at the album as it three movements you know the first is when he talked about his grandmother my great-grandmother and her like revolutionary attitude in that block of songs, there are a lot of songs about like f- kind of like female empowerment or like like the complex issues of just being a woman in general in in this century. And then also um, the second interlude was about um, him, my dad, um, and the invasion of Grenada by U.S. forces in 1983. So what that was like. And then there are several songs that follow that are kind of in that theme. And then the last is about him deciding to stay in Canada. And um, that precedes one last song, which I consider to be like the thesis of the album. So, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> That's really on. cool. How did you record that interview? We recorded in the basement of of his apartment and we just like padded the doors with pillows and tried to make it sound as dead as possible 
And we kept, we actually kept having to stop the interview because um, him and my stepmom, they have a cat and the cat kept like coming to the door and like scratching. You could hear faint oh. meows. So, but we got it all done. <laughs> it was long, but. Oh, cats. Um, do you want to talk about cats? No, let's talk about <laughs> no. be on the phone for another two hours. Um, wanted to talk about the imagery on the album the album cover and um, the liner notes, uh, but but mostly the the pictures that you chose to include. When when somebody Google's Grenada, it shows like beautiful co- co- Caribbean beaches and this uh, or this this underwater sculptures and <laughs> like all this like this paradise. But the pictures that you use on the record seem very real. Yeah, you mean in the liner note section? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are actually photos that my mother took of the island with her um, like Kodak disposable camera in 1997 when we were there. And um, she's been... <sighs> my mom, she she's awesome. I was just, I was just thinking about her and... Um, just like to have a biracial kit, like to just enter into that whole space. She's been really, really supportive and really helpful um, in like me, you know, figuring out what my history is. And uh, when I told her that this would kind of be the theme of the record, um, she went through her photos and basically got like 12 or 15 photos of that she took of the Caribbean, of Grenada specifically. And those felt like, you're right, those felt way more real and less kind of tourist-inspired. And it felt like the Grenada that I met and the Grenada that I knew, which was local people and family and stuff. And so those are the photos that I chose to include. That's really nice. I feel like that's something that, like, my mom would have done, and then she would have given me the pictures, and I would have been like, oh, thanks. But you... (laughs) But it actually turned out really well. <laughs> where Where are you from? Are you from Pittsburgh? I, no, I'm from Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, outside of Boston. <laughs> and if my mom is listening, I would totally use your pictures <laughs> on my album. Definitely. For sure. <laughs> um, well, Kaya Cater, thank you so much for taking so much time and being so open and just a wonderful person in the world. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Okay, that's my conversation with Kaya Cater on Basic Folk. And I'm trying to like think of like something profound to say at the end of this. But the truth is, is that I am having a very hard time um, putting into words how I feel about the conversation I had with Kaya. I'm just so grateful that she was so open This interview has changed me, uh, and and hopefully it has helped you learn a thing or two about what it is like to be a person of color in the world, and specifically in a mostly, like, white music genre. And I keep trying to, like, get back to, like, having this profound statement, but I'm just really grateful. I am just so in awe of Kaya and her talent uh, and she's just she's just an awesome person don't forget to check out her new album Grenades 
I have um, show notes on my website that you can check out at cindyhouse.net. I have, I'll post her record up there and uh, video. And thank you to Janelle Gutierrez, uh, my website designer, who is super cool. Thank you to Alex Stanton for the music of Basic Folk. And thanks to my podcast apprentice, Laura McCarthy. Uh, and thank you, dear listener, for checking out Basic Folk. Please subscribe, leave a review. Oh, yeah, you can get your in-home speakers, those speakers that you talk to, and um, they do what you say and answer your questions. You can get them to play Basic Folk as well. Um, I have gotten one to play it, and it's very exciting. Uh, so there you are. We will see you next week, or I will see you next week. I don't know who else is in this room. It's just me. Uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Basic Folk. Bye. Bye.